This is Channel 253. In this episode of Nerd Farmer. Let's beg the rich and oil companies and pharmaceutical companies for a small fraction of their profits so we can help the poor and, and the people that we neglected. That's what redistribution logic tells you. We're talking about pre-distribution. Spend on national priorities to produce justice and equity and sustainability and, and, and strengthen democracy as opposed to feeding the oligarchy. And then tax the hell out of corporations, tax the hell out of the oligarchs, not because we need their money, but because we need to democratize the economy and make it equitable and so on. Did you know Channel 253 is member supported? I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I hope you will show your support by going to channel253.com slash membership and join. Thank you. This is the Nerd Farmer Podcast, a national conversation through a local lens. Greetings, greetings. Welcome to the Nerd Farmer Podcast brought to you by Search Associates. My name is Nate and I'm your host, an American teacher here in the Channel 253 studios in Tacoma, Washington in the Moon Yard with Doug. Uh, We are having a conversation today. It's going to be one of our Nerd Farmer Academy episodes. Uh, This is a conversation about modern monetary theory, also known as MMT. And what I want to do today is I want to have a conversation that's appropriate for my audience and also thinking about classroom teachers who may want to use this in their classrooms. And so my guest today is Fadal Kaboom. He's an associate professor of economics at Denison University and also the president of the Global Institute for Sustainable Prosperity. So Fadal, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited for this conversation. Uh, in doing my research and kind of reading about you, uh, you are the right person for this conversation. Uh, I want to own that, like, I have an undergrad with the emphasis in economics, but I am not an expert in this. And so I'm looking forward to going to school with you today. Uh, that's perfect because, you know, most people are not experts in economics, and yet all of us live in the economy, breathe the economy, and, uh, and live the consequences of economic decisions that policymakers uh, make. So my mission and as a, as a professional is really translate is to translate a lot of the issues that all of us care about to the general public because we can't have a democracy without people armed and informed uh, with clear visions and, and clear uh, processes about how the economy is actually being managed. Well said. Before we get to MMT, I actually want to start with a little more basic concepts. Uh, For the layman, can you explain the way that Keynesian economics uh, and that supply-side economics uh, basically view the concept of government debt? Uh, so first, for, for most people, you know, Keynesian economics versus, uh, you know, supply side economics, just to clarify, there's two visions about how we organize the economy, broadly speaking, two broad visions. There are more than that, obviously. One is, is what we call the neoclassical, some people refer to it, neoliberal supply side economics, Reaganomics, right? All of that is one umbrella. And the vision is, is very straightforward. The, the idea is that the market system left to its own devices without government regulations and government control and so on is the best mechanism to produce not only the best outcomes for individuals, but for society at large. That's the idea of the invisible hand of the market, right? You know, get the government out of the way and let individuals follow their self-interest 
compete freely and fairly with each other, use their private property, so private property is critical to this uh, concept, and give them freedom of choice. If you have these four pillars, private property, competition, freedom of choice, and self-interest, then not only will they achieve what's best for them individually, but also incidentally, they'll produce what's best for society as a whole. And every time the government intervenes to regulate, to uh, create obstacles or rules or manage the system, it will just impede this invisible hand from achieving those best results. That's vision number one. <laughs> that vision failed miserably during the Great Depression in the United States and across the world. And that's where John Maynard Keynes, uh, after whom Keynesian economics is named, who was, by the way, one of the leading <laughs> economist under that earlier vision, right? The, the dominant uh, theoretical framework. He rebelled against that vision because he saw the failure. He saw the misery of the Great Depression. Uh, he saw that the market left to its own devices is going into this vicious cycle, this downward spiral. And he began to rethink the way we do economics, the way we manage the economy. And that was the birth of Keynesian economics, which essentially said the invisible hand of the market is not gonna get us out of the Great Depression and the misery of, of that cycle. We need the visible hand of the government, not to own and control the economy and the sort of socialist or communist system, but to be the engine that jumpstarts the economy and that addresses structural weaknesses that the private sector on its own can't identify and can't address. So once we transitioned into the, the, the Keynesian way of thinking about the economy, we recognize that government spending plays a major role, that the government has the capacity to focus on long-term results as opposed to short-term profits, which is what the private sector does. And as a result, once you focus on long-term results, you focus on uh, the capacity of the government, the sovereign issuer of the currency, to spend beyond its tax revenues. As a result, to run a deficit and to accumulate larger and larger national debt over time. Whereas in the neoclassical framework, that's a red flag for bankruptcy. That's a red flag for, for the economy you know, going uh, you know, uh, down the tube, as, as they say. So that creates now a, a kind of these two umbrella visions of you know, how do we manage the economy. And one of the major myths about managing the economy under the mainstream approach, the, the supply side approach, is that the government should operate in the same way as you and I in private businesses operate financially. So you and I have to work hard and earn an income first in order to spend. Makes sense. Now, if you wanted to spend beyond our income, we have to borrow from a bank or from a friend, and now we have a debt. And that financial burden means that you and I have to work harder in order to earn additional income, have to spend less in order to pay our bills or, or do both, right? So they say that principle that applies to you and I in private businesses and states and municipalities uh, who balance their budgets at the local level and so on and have to pay their debt, they say the federal government must follow the same sound finance principles, uh, which means austerity which means the government can't intervene during a COVID crisis. The government can't intervene to address poverty or homelessness or, or long-term structural issues, funding education. So it leaves essentially the economy relying exclusively on the private sector, everyone fending for themselves and, and so on. And if the private sector fails, they say, well, there's charity. 
That's what charity is for. It's not the responsibility of the government to, to do this. Well, the modern monetary theory approach, the MMT approach, brings this key distinction between the issuer of the dollar, in this case, the U.S. federal government, which is the only legal issuer of the U.S. dollar, versus the rest of us users of the dollar. You and I, states, municipalities, businesses, nonprofits. So you and I, of course, we have to balance our books. Of course, we have to follow sound, responsible financial principles. But the federal government, the issue of the currency, doesn't need to borrow its own money in order to spend. And as a matter of fact, it doesn't even need to tax its own money out of the economy in order to spend. These two roles are completely separate. So we spend on national priorities, and then we tax and regulate for other reasons. So from an MMT perspective, modern monetary theory perspective, we should tax pollution to decarbonize, not because we need the money or permission from oil companies to have a healthier economy. We should tax Wall Street to reduce inequality, to reduce speculation. Um, we should tax the, the ultra-rich, the oligarchs, to protect democracy from the power and influence of, of the rich, not because we need their money or their permission to have better education or better schools or better health and, and so on. So we decouple these two roles. Taxing is important. Regulating market power and regulating businesses is important, but not because we need their money to fund these programs. So we should fund national priorities. And the best examples to illustrate this, um, traditionally, I usually refer to World War II because it was the most expensive government spending program, you know, up until recent days now with the, with the COVID intervention, which I'll come to in, in, a, in a minute. But think about it. World War II, the most expensive government spending program came right after the Great Depression, the most miserable time in U.S. history. There was no money to be taxed and there was no money to be borrowed right, to pay for the war, quote unquote. So how did we intervene during World War II? How did we manage to spend all that money? Well, it's very simple. Just like any other government spending program, the government spends on priorities. And how do we approve the spending? 535 people that we elect get together and decide what the priorities are. And once they vote to approve a spending priority, they create the money. That's why we say Congress has the power of the purse. And that's exactly what happened during World War II. So finding the money was not the problem. But the challenge that we faced at the time is once we spend the money to hire millions of people to build the tanks and airplanes and, and, and fund the war effort, then what happens once that money hits the streets, so to speak, when it hits the economy? Those individuals who worked hard to produce those tanks and airplanes and, 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 uh, and military equipment they earned their money. Now they're free to spend it. They want to buy a new house. They want to buy a new car. They want to go on vacation. It's, it's a free country, right? That's where the problem is. We didn't have people working to produce homes, new homes during World War II because everybody was producing for the military. We didn't even have new cars because the entire city of Detroit and the rest of the economy literally stopped producing cars for consumers in order to produce military equipment. So that spending would have caused inflation during World War II. So what did we do to prevent that inflation from happening? We started selling freedom bonds so that those workers who have the cash now in their bank accounts, instead of spending it on new homes and new cars, they would buy a freedom bond 
or a war bond, and they were very specifically marketed to those workers, so that they postponed their consumption until after the war, when we actually have workers producing cars and producing homes and so on. And that's actually what led to the post-war boom, is that all of those savers during the war started buying homes and cars and, and boosting economic activity once we were done with producing so much military equipment. So the lesson from that experience is that we worry about the risk of inflation, which is determined by the availability of productive resources to meet the demand from those consumers. It wasn't about finding the money so that the government spends. And nobody during those debates, when we were going into World War II, dared to say that maybe we should do this uh, incrementally. Maybe we should send 10,000 troops and see if we can scare those Nazis away. Well, of course it doesn't work. We have to do this massive intervention. Very similar situation obviously happened last year with the COVID crisis. When the CARES Act was on the table in Washington, D.C., the entire cohort of 535 elected officials voted yes, with the exception of a few people who couldn't be there because of COVID, because they were in quarantine or something, which means we set the national priority and we said, we're going to boost spending by $2.3 trillion at the time. And that was like one, one of the big you know, pushes to address COVID relief uh, spending. Nobody during those debates said, here's who we're, who we're going to tax to fund this COVID relief, or here's who we're going to borrow from, because those are separate issues, has nothing to do with it. And now we've broken the deficit myth, by the way, which is a, the title of a great book by Stephanie Kelton, who's one of the leading MMT economists. It's a best-selling book on the New York Times uh, list. Uh, the deficit myth that the deficit automatically causes inflation, that the deficit will bankrupt the country, that the deficit will destroy economic activity and so on. Uh, now we know for sure with the recent example in the United States that we know how to manage the risk of inflation, that government budgets don't operate in the same way as your state or local municipal budget because they have to balance their books or like my budget or your budget. You and I have to balance our books. Corporations have to balance their books and they have to worry about their debt. But the federal government operates under a completely different uh, framework. And once we discover that, we realize that we have, at the federal level, we have a massive amount of additional spending capacity that we haven't tapped into during regular times, not just during the crisis. We're not saying that spending capacity is infinite. I'll be the first person to tell you that federal spending does have limits, but that limit is not constrained by tax revenues and by how much we can borrow from the private sector. It's much, much larger than that. And that additional spending capacity is constrained by two critical constraints. The first one I already discussed, which is the availability of productive capacity. That is skilled people, machinery, equipment, technology, know-how. The good thing about those things, productive capacity, is that it's producible. We can employ and train millions of people to build additional capacity in health, education, infrastructure, renewable energy, you name it, the sky is the limit, right? The problem is the second risk of inflation, source of inflation, which has to do with market power, what I call abusive price-setting behavior by key players in the economy. And all of us know who they are. It's the big tech, 
It's the big oil and gas. It's big pharma. It's Wall Street. It's the big telecom companies. These are the companies who can raise prices simply because they can. In other words, because we let them, because they're not regulated accordingly. We have laws in this country called antitrust laws that are supposed to do this. And who's in charge of updating and enforcing antitrust laws, regulating market power? It's the 535 people we send to Washington, D.C. If we truly have a democracy, a government of the people, by the people, for the people, not a government of the super PACs, by the super PACs, for the super PACs, then their job, the 535 elected officials, is to tax and regulate that abusive market power out of existence. In other words, make the market more competitive, make it more democratic. And as a result, if we tame that power, the power to inflate and, and, and suck resources away from the rest of us by, by corporations, if we are successful at strengthening the democratic process, then we can do two things. We can spend on additional productive capacity to serve the economy, especially renewable energy, health, education, and we tax and regulate abusive power in order to expand our realm of possibilities. And when we do that, we push the risk of inflation further and further and further out. And that's really what MMT does, is shine a bright light on the realm of possibilities and identifies the real constraints, not these artificial ideological constraints that we've been you know, fed for, for years. That's really you know, the, the MMT framework in, in, in a few minutes, and I'm happy to expand on um, and, and clarify uh, anything you'd like me to discuss. No, for sure. I appreciate that. I, I want to just encapsulate, because I think sometimes it's worth like laying out a definition and then kind of playing around with it. So tell me if I'm correct here. The grounding theory of MMT is is that all of our conceptions about budgets and deficits and uh, the danger of deficits are misplaced and that the real deficit warning, the real danger warning for the economy is inflation. And so essentially all of the worrying about what the deficit is does not matter because the government is the issuer of currency. Absolutely. And, and, and just to highlight how dominant this idea is, it's not just economic theories to, and, and, and textbooks who, who actually you know, introduce these ideas and reinforce them, but this has become such a powerful political and cultural phenomenon that anybody you ask down the street, you know, what do you think will happen if the federal government spends $2 trillion on XYZ? They say, well, that would be nice to have those things, but I think it's going to cause inflation and we're going to pay for it later. Right. And with more taxes and and burden on, on working class and so on. That's the ideology that's been fed over and over again. Mm -hmm. And we're finally addressing it and living the alternative in the United States to some extent. But we've known this for a long time. Japan, for example, for decades, literally three decades, has the highest debt to GDP ratio in the world for decades. Right now, it's 265 percent massive debt-to-GDP ratio in the world. The traditional textbook dominant narrative had told us that in the case of Japan, Japan should be experiencing very high levels of inflation, maybe even hyperinflation. Japan should be experiencing extremely high levels of interest rate and complete bankruptcy and economic collapse. Well, guess what? Japan's economy is still one of the strongest in the world. It's the third strongest economy in the world. 
Japan has deflation, not inflation, for decades. That's one of the major problems that Japan has is too much deflation, not even close to inflation. And number three, Japan has low and in most cases negative interest rates, the exact opposite of what the traditional approach tells us. And even mainstream economists who believe in this standard approach, they have finally admitted that they have no idea what's happening in Japan. It just doesn't fit the, 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 the theory. Uh, but now we have more and more economies like Japan who are experiencing the same issues. What we thought was going to cause inflation, hyperinflation, is not causing inflation, hyperinflation. What we thought will lead to high interest rates, we have negative interest rates in many parts of the world. So MMT reminds us what monetary sovereignty means. Because there's this assumption that all countries are sovereign. Well, yeah, maybe politically, in terms of their territorial integrity, they have their army, their flag, their national anthem. That's what most people think of, of sovereignty. But here we're talking about monetary sovereignty, which means you manage your entire monetary system independently of any foreign currency or, 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 uh, or monetary intervention from outside. So the key here is that the national debt of the United States, the entire amount of government bonds that are owed by the federal government are actually denominated in US dollars and only in US dollars. In other words, we never borrow and promise to pay in euros or in British pounds or in any other foreign currencies. The same is true for Japan. The entire debt stock of Japan is denominated in the Japanese currency, in the Japanese yen. Now, that is not the case for developing countries, sure. like my own country, Tunisia, which is going through a debt crisis right now, because most of Tunisia's debt is what we call external debt, denominated in dollars and euros and Japanese yen, British pounds, which means the government of Tunisia is not able to simply issue its own currency to pay that debt, like the U.S. does, like Japan does. There is no risk of insolvency in the U.S. It's, it's nonsensical to, to say that the U.S. can't, but other countries do have limitations. It's mostly developing countries. Yeah. I, I want to just on that point for a second, because this is a point that I struggled to get my head around originally, but now I understand, and I want to bring the audience along with us on this. The sure. U.S. can never go through a currency crisis like the Greeks did because the U.S. is the generator and the guarantor of its own currency, but the Greeks were subject to the wills of the Central Bank of Europe. Can you European just, Central Bank, yes. Unpack that a little bit, because it, it, it's a really complicated point. The, the, the U.S. Sure. controls its own currency, and that prevents a currency crisis, uh, but the Greeks, which are a developed country, went through hell a few years ago. Just unpack why that's true. Sure. Well, Greece uh, joined the euro system, uh, not the European Union. They joined the European Union, but then the next step is they joined the Eurozone which is the countries that actually gave up their national currency and now use the euro as their national currency, which means uh, Greece, Italy, Spain, all the countries that use the euro have now become the equivalent of the state of Ohio or the state of California or the state of Indiana, which means they became currency users, users of a foreign currency that the government, the democratically elected government of uh, Greece and their parliament has no jurisdiction over. So. The state of Ohio can only spend what we can generate in terms of taxes from our residents, plus what we can generate maybe from borrowing from financial markets. Beyond that, we're constrained. And once we have 
a larger amount of debt, the lenders themselves will say, well, we can, we're not going to lend you more because you're clearly not managing your finances. You have too much debt. Your economy is weak. We're not going to lend you anymore. And if we're going to lend you, we're going to lend you at a much higher rate because you're a risky borrower now. So now the state of Ohio has to implement austerity to balance its books. We have to tax more, spend less, or do both in order to manage our finances. That's exactly what happens to, to Greece except it happened in the context of a global financial crisis. The first thing that many countries in the Eurozone, including France and Germany, the first thing is that they intervened to bail out their financial system during the global financial crisis. So they had money available that would have been going to education, pensions, infrastructure, health, and they took that money and they used it to bail out the banks. And when it comes to spending on other services. Now they didn't have the money, so they had to borrow to fund education and health and infrastructure. And the lender said, well, you know what? You have too much debt. You're too risky. We're not going to lend you. So now you have to go to the IMF. You have to go to the Troika, which is the, uh, the European Commission and so on. And they said, well, your finances are messed up. So here's what you need to do. You need to cut spending on education, privatize education. You need to uh, cut uh, pensions, because you promised your retirees way too much money that you can't afford. And, and the next day you have riots in the streets in, in Greece for, for obvious reasons. And, and people committing suicide because their, their pension money is gone and, and the government is not there to, to support them. And the public health system is in crisis. The education system is in crisis. And young people leaving the country to find jobs abroad. So you're, you're losing also productivity and so on. So that becomes the vicious cycle of, of austerity. And that's what happens when a country gives up its monetary sovereignty. Now, in the U.S., luckily, we have a federal government system. So when the state of Ohio or California or Washington state has a crisis, the federal government intervenes to, to do the right thing with fiscal policy and monetary policy. And the European system, they intentionally joined this ideologically designed club, which says, you know what? We're not going to have any fiscal policy at the federal level, at the Eurozone level. There's just a bunch of states who balance their budgets. And the ECB's goal and mission is to discipline all of those states into fiscal discipline, into um, uh, balancing and managing their finances like currency users, essentially. And that's why the ECB was very strict with its intervention with Greece and Italy, we're not gonna give you money and support you during the crisis unless you commit to these very severe cuts in your social services and so on. And, and that's why a, a lot of those countries are, are trapped in this, what I describe sometimes as a collective suicide pact. And that's why some people have um, urged uh, Greece and Italy and others to actually exit the Eurozone, reclaim their monetary sovereignty, and commit to investing in to address the structural weaknesses of, of their economies. Because to be very clear, the Greek economy is structurally weak. It's much closer to a developing uh, country than, than to a developed country. Uh, so without public investments to address those structural weaknesses, the private sector will not address those long-term structural weaknesses. The private sector will primarily focus on extractive economic activity, um, uh, to, uh, which does create a little bit of jobs, but it doesn't solve the long-term problems. Okay. 
So we'll take a break here. And when we come back, I have a bit of poetry. And then also, I want to talk about this stab versus tabs thing. We'll be back. Hey, farm fam. It's no secret I've been podcasting from Abu Dhabi these past two years. But what I haven't talked much about is how I found this school, ended up teaching abroad. During the hellscape of the last four years, Hope and I decided that we needed a change. And we turned to Search Associates to make it happen. Search Associates worked with 800 schools in 125 countries, so we had many choices of where to go. They assigned an associate to work with us directly to learn more about our backgrounds, our interests, and find a position that would be the perfect fit. Hope and I both wanted to teach at the same school, which you'd think would make Search harder, but working with Search Associates, you'd never know it. Their personal touch approach made it a breeze. Another great thing is that the associate who's assigned to help you is a former school leader, most often a former head of an international school, so they really get the international school scene. I can't recommend them enough. Now, here's the thing. The political situation might have changed at home, but the benefits of teaching abroad are still clear. A great job combined with a rich cultural experience that comes from experiencing another culture. Listen, don't take my word for it. More than 40,000 highly qualified teachers, administrators, counselors, librarians, and interns, and other educators have used Search Associates to find positions in top K-12 international schools. So don't wait another day to pursue your dream of teaching abroad. With Search Associates, you'll take that journey step-by-step, from filling out the applications to selling your new school with confidence. Visit searchassociates.com to start your journey. Thank you to Search Associates for helping us live our dreams and teach abroad. And thank you for your support of this podcast. And we are back. I want to thank you today for downloading the show. The Nerd Farmer Podcast is part of the lovely Channel 253 Network. We are a network of podcasts with roots in Tacoma and in Abu Dhabi, giving points, perspectives, and elevating voices you won't hear elsewhere. If you enjoy what you're hearing here today, I encourage you to join Channel 253 as a member. A membership costs $4 a month or $40 a year. And a membership allows us to make this work happen. As a member, you get access to our memberly Slack, uh, member-only events, and also access to Doug's off-the-record podcast, which is conversations that are a little too spicy for the airwaves with the hosts about things that are going on. If times are tough for you right now, one way you can support the show is writing a review. And in fact, I want to share what might be my favorite five-star review I ever got. Uh, this one is in response to our episode about Bitcoin. Yeah, whatever. I'll give it five stars because I'm not petty. I was digging the show until he started pushing the vaccine at the very end. That crap is getting old real quick. Too many other great, <laughs> this cracks me up. Too many other great shows to listen to that don't push an agenda. I'm out, Tacoma. We need a podcast with some grit in it, and this ain't it. So if you, uh, I want to thank this person for leaving a five-star review and not being petty. Uh, and also, if you're not vaccinated, get vaccinated. I'm not sorry. All right, back to our conversation. <laughs> Absolutely. Get vaccinated. So one of the things that I had a revelation about with MMT is that the sequence that I think each of us grew up with and understand and that seems fairly rational about how money is created and how money works is actually not how money works. And so I want to walk through like what the doctrinal thing that we're usually told is. And then I want you to tell me why I'm wrong or why that conception is wrong. What we are normally told is, is that I am a worker, and then in my working, I produce, and from my production, I am taxed. And then that tax money that I pay is given to the government, and the government spends that money. Exactly. Yeah. So that narrative verifies or justifies that the government is just like you. The government is a user of that currency and is dependent on your contribution. And the more you contribute, the more the government can spend. And especially if you're very wealthy and you pay a lot of taxes, 
then we should be thankful for your wealth and your generosity and your commitment to funding government spending. That is uh, an absolute myth. And, and Stephanie Kelton has made this line very, um, very popular. Uh, Stephanie says, uh, money doesn't grow on rich people. <laughs> that we, we don't depend on their wealth and, and tax payments to fund public uh, services, to find money. And that narrative has been made popular over the last almost 100 years now by uh, professional economists. And the, the main economists who introduced this to textbooks and really taught generations of economists, and as a result, hundreds of millions of people over time, this narrative is an MIT economist who won the Nobel Prize at some point in the 70s, I think. His name is Paul Samuelson. And his textbook, Principles of Economics, that was first released in the 1940s, that was the dominant textbook for decades. As a matter of fact, it's still being produced to this day. I used it and as an undergrad. In, yeah, and in the section on money, the origins of money, because it's a story of origins here, we are told this beautiful narrative, which is perfectly logical, that says, first, there was no money. We had a barter system, right? So we had to barter in real things. So you have to have what I want, I have to have what you want and the right quantities at the right time so we can exchange. And as society became more sophisticated and more larger in numbers, that barter system became so inconvenient, right? To, to find the right person with the right quantities at the right time. So what human beings did is that we invented money as a medium of exchange to facilitate that inconvenience of, uh, of, uh, of barter system. And that's how money was invented. It was invented by markets, by private individuals, not by governments. Governments came much, much later in time and they started to, so they came in as participants in an already existing monetary system that was invented by the market. And slowly they started to regulate it and take over the uh, control of the you know, money supply and so on. And then the story goes into the future. But the key lesson is that the government is a participant in that system. So it must behave in the same way you and I responsible individuals behave financially. We balance our books, we pay our debts, we don't you know, uh, accumulate massive debts and so on. So when Paul Samuelson was asked about that story, where did it come from? What kind of evidence do we actually have that that's how actually money was invented? And he was completely honest. He said, I made it up. He said, of course, it must have happened like that. It's totally logical. And it's true. It's a logical story. We just don't have uh, the slightest shred of evidence that it actually happened in that way. So who were the the researchers and the scholars who actually dig for evidence, physical evidence, it's the anthropologists, the historians, the archaeologists who actually dig for physical evidence to identify how earlier societies function. And it turns out that there is a truckload of evidence in anthropology and archaeology about how monetary systems were introduced in dozens and dozens and dozens of societies around the world. All of those stories were gathered in a wonderful book, very accessible, called um, Debt, The Last 5,000 Years by uh, the late anthropologist David Graeber. It's a, it's a thick book that has all the stories that uh, anthropologists and archaeologists, not a single one of those cases confirms or validates the textbook story that economists have taught us for, for generations. And every single one of those stories 
backed by hard evidence, physical evidence, anthropological, archaeological evidence, every single one of them confirms a, a standard way that monetary systems were created and, in, and enforced. And that's the story that MMT builds its narrative on. And I'll give you one classic example uh, from those stories from around the world, which is how the British colonial authority, the French colonial authority, colonized parts of Africa and introduced a monetary system in there. And by the way, uh, the term modern monetary theory, uh, it's kind of an inside joke. It's not modern as in we've discovered this the last few years. It's modern as in the last 5,000 years. That's mm -hmm. how monetary systems always existed and were introduced. And our monetary system today is, is no different. So what did the British authority do when they went to colonize a certain part of Africa? They go into a local community that has its own economy. People are working and producing. They even have a local currency. And they say, wait a minute, we're going to do things differently here. We're the British Empire. We're here to extract resources and wealth. And we need the local population to work for us. So how are we going to do this? The first thing they declare is, we, the British Empire, are imposing a tax on you, the local population. You have to pay us a tax in British pounds. We will not accept anything else. The local population doesn't have British pounds, doesn't care for British pounds. They say, what is this thing you call the British pound? I say, oh, it's this thing that has the, you know, the, the, the picture of the king or the queen on it or, or whatever. They say, okay, how do we pay you this tax and why should we pay you the tax? I say, well, if you don't pay the tax, we're going to take your land, your property, your liberty. There are severe consequences if you don't pay the tax at the end of the year. So the population says, so how do we pay you this tax? So you go away. Where do we get these things you call British pounds? They say, oh, glad you asked. We're looking for people to dig the mines. We're going to pay them in British pounds. So you work for us. We pay you in British pounds. And at the end of the year, you pay taxes to the British colonial authority. So now all of a sudden, a significant portion of the local population has to give up their economic activity of subsistence and, 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 and so on, and all of a sudden work the extractive industries that the British Empire or the French Empire needs. And that creates the demand for the currency. If they ask them five minutes before that, what do you think a British pound is worth to you? They say nothing. It's worthless in this society. But all of a sudden, because your liberty, your property, your, your uh, prosperity depends on paying that tax, so that the British authority leaves you alone, all of a sudden you're willing to dedicate your entire you know, time, labor time, to working for the British colonial empire in order to pay the tax. So think about this logically in terms of spending and taxation. Was there any way for the British authority on day one to step in and say, we're going to collect taxes? To collect what? It doesn't even exist in the system yet. First, you have to spend money into existence to pay those workers who are doing the mining work. And then you collect the taxes at the end of the year. So this is a point of logic, which is completely contradictory to what we're taught, which is the government needs tax revenues first in order to spend on health and education and infrastructure. That is completely illogical, false statement. We even use the phrase taxpayers' money pays for this and pays for that. Absolutely not. It's completely false, illogical. That's point number one. Point number two, let's say the British authority spent 100 million pounds paying workers during that first year. 
So now there's 100 million pounds in circulation in, in that local economy. Is it possible for the British authority to tax 100 million pounds at the end of that first year so that they balance their budget? Well, if they do that, what would you do, Nate, if you worked hard the entire year and then the British authority says, by the way, the tax rate is 100%. We're taking all your wages back. This what is the one time. This is the one time that Arthur Laffer's Laffer curve makes sense because if the tax rate is 100, percent I'm not going to do anything. Well, you because you're a polite person, but in reality, <laughs> you're going to rebel <laughs> against the British Empire. <laughs> so the British Empire, of course, is not interested in rebellion because they want you to work the next year and the following year to continue the the, the extraction. So they're going to tax a much, much lower rate, maybe 20, maybe 30 percent, whatever they think is going to be reasonable, which means at the end of that first year, the British authority is going to have a government deficit. They spent 100 and they taxed 30 and they do it again year two and year three and year four. And every annual deficit adds up to what we call that big, large, scary number, which is the national debt. So now the question is, where did those first 70 million pounds worth of deficit go. They didn't disappear. They're in the hands of the private sector, the public. That's accumulation of net savings in the private sector. So what we call government deficit is to be translated literally to the penny in terms of private sector surplus, wealth accumulation. And this is where we start to discover our illogical statements that we hear so frequently these days. We say, government deficit is too big. We can't afford that. That's a disaster. Translate that with what I just described. It's as if we're saying the private sector wealth is accumulating so high. We need to reduce that and allow the government to balance its books. Now, of course, there is a distribution issue, which I'm not discussing here, right? Because sure. that surplus in the private sector, some of it is going to the top 10%, the top 1%, right? That's a separate issue of distribution of who gets what. But in terms of macro effects, a deficit for the government is exactly equal to the penny, to a surplus of the non-government sector, the rest of us in the private sector, households, and so on. So that's the point of logic that MMT insists on, so is to understand the key role of the currency issuer. So instead of thinking in terms of redistribution, which many of my progressive friends always say, we, we need to tax the rich to redistribute. No, 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 no. We're talking about pre-distribution. You want to distribute money the right way to begin with so that wealth doesn't accumulate in the hands of the few. So you, you start spending on infrastructure, health, and education. So you don't have to wait for the economic machine to suck wealth to the top and neglect people in community and they say, oh, we have a problem, so what should we do now? Let's beg the rich and oil companies and pharmaceutical companies for a small fraction of their profits so we can help the poor and, and the people that we neglected. That's what redistribution logic tells you. We're talking about pre-distribution. Spend on national priorities to produce justice and equity and sustainability and, and, and strengthen democracy as opposed to feeding the oligarchy. And then tax the hell out of corporations, tax the hell out of the oligarchs, not because we need their money, but because we need to democratize the economy and make it equitable and so on. So that's, uh, we're talking about generations of economists and policymakers and people who have been fed this myth about how money works and MMT just goes down to the, to the evidence, to the real logical 
um, uh, narrative and then draws the logical policy consequences from it. So in that sense, MMT is really not a theory per se. We're describing how the system has been designed and then we're describing that it's been designed with these artificial constraints that actually produce the wealth inequality and the exclusion and, and the neglect in the economy. We're saying, well, those artificial constraints, we can get rid of them. And when we do, we make the economy even more democratic. Um, so that's really the, the idea here. I want to just reinforce one point that you made that I think is worth saying here, is that when we hear these numbers thrown around about $17 trillion in debt, Every single dollar in debt is actually held in the private sector or by sovereign wealth funds in the form of a bond. And so we may have $17 trillion in debt that we've spent, frankly, unwisely on some wars and some tax cuts. But that also has created $17 trillion in assets for the public sector and oh, – sorry, for the private sector, for citizens, for retirement funds, for pension funds, for investors like myself in the form of bonds. OK. The, oh, go ahead, please. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. The, the, the last tenet of MMT I want to investigate today is the idea of a jobs guarantee. And so I want to share a bit of a poem with the audience that I came across with your help. And then I want to talk about how MMT and a jobs guarantee go hand in hand. <clears throat> it's a paradigm shift. It's undeniable. Don't you agree? It changes the narrative and destroys the foundation of austerity. A whole new world is possible without artificial scarcity. We'll fight unemployment and poverty with a jobs guarantee with decent wages, full benefits, and every need covered if necessary. What is a jobs guarantee? And what role does a jobs guarantee play in the idea, implementation, and uh, system of modern monetary theory? Well, uh, thank you for, for sharing that poem. I, I, I wrote that, that poem a few months ago when, uh, when a group of uh, uh, teenagers actually who are interested in public policy and MMT and the job guarantee invited me to speak. And I thought, well, I'm not going to do a PowerPoint presentation and engage <laughs> with these uh, young people. So I started putting together bullet points and then I noticed they started to rhyme. So I said, well, let's make it a poem. So that's, uh, that's that piece. And I'm happy to share the link uh, to the poem. But a job guarantee is a, is a core feature of the MMT framework. Because as we said earlier, the real constraints are about real resources and it's about the risk of inflation. So what kind of comprehensive economic program can we put in place that, that allows us to address the areas of need and lack of productive capacity, socioeconomic exclusion, and allows us to do this in a way that is automatically price stabilizing? And that's the job guarantee. So the idea of the job guarantee is that the federal government will stand ready to employ anybody who's ready, willing, and able to work at a living wage and benefits. So who are the individuals who are ready, willing, and able to work? It's the unemployed, people who are looking and looking and looking, and they can't find anything in the private sector. So if you're already working in the private sector, you're fine. We're talking about people who want to work and who are automatically excluded from the system. So it's the responsibility of the federal government to match those workers who want to work with the needs of the economy in areas of neglect, especially in the care economy, caring for people, caring for youth, for children, caring for the planet, uh, and, and all the things that we've neglected for, for a long time. Um, and, it, and it can be done at the local level with local decision-making, setting all the priorities. Do we need bridges? We don't need bridges in every part of the country. Some places need bridges. Some places need parks. Some places need 
uh, affordable housing. Some places need elderly care or after-school programs for kids and things like that. So the design of these programs is kind of uh, not micromanaged by the federal government, but funded by the federal government. This is the key feature. The job guarantee is a, is a mechanism that is technically used by all governments around the world, including the U.S. federal governments, just not to create jobs. We call it a buffer stock mechanism, and I'll explain what buffer stock means. For example, in the agricultural sector in the U.S. and many countries around the world, what the federal government does is that we operate a buffer stock mechanism to stabilize agricultural prices for key commodities that are critical for price stability in the U.S. So what does the federal government do? The federal government steps in as a buyer of last resort. And here we're talking about employer of last resort. A buyer of last resort for corn and wheat and other agricultural commodities. When farmers produce a massive surplus, normally the price of corn, the price of wheat will go to zero and farmers will go bankrupt. So we don't want that. So the federal government steps in as a buyer of last resort, buys all the surplus, as much surplus as necessary to keep the prices of those commodities relatively profitable for farmers so that they can continue doing their, their work. What do we do with that surplus of wheat and corn? Well, some of it we give it to poor countries. Some of it we store it away um, uh, you know, in case two or three years down the road we have uh, food shortages or, or we have crop failures or, or you know, floods and fires that destroy the, the crops. So that's stored away by the federal government. It is paid for by the federal government in order to stabilize the price of corn and wheat and other things. Two or three years down the road, God forbid, we have a natural disaster. We have food shortages because farmers, their crops failed, there's floods. So now what would normally happen in the market is that those commodity prices will go through the roof and corn will be more expensive, food will be more expensive, and consumers will pay the price. So what does the federal government do? That's when the federal government steps in as a seller of last resort of that surplus that we stored away. And the government will keep selling and selling and selling until the prices of those commodities come down to within a reasonable boundary so that it's profitable enough for producers and not too expensive for consumers. And that's the price stability features of that buffer stock. The federal government always stands ready to buy or sell in order to you know, uh, counter the negative effects of, of the market system. So we do that for all kinds of commodities because it's so important for economic stability, for price stability. And what we're arguing in the MMT community is that one of the most important areas of stabilizing prices is the price of labor. And we don't have a buffer stock for labor. So effectively, when somebody's unemployed, what is the wage that they receive? It's not the minimum wage, they receive zero. We allow the price of labor to go to zero, but we don't allow the price of corn or wheat to go to zero. Hmm. And by the way, we don't allow the price of financial assets to go to zero. The Federal Reserve Bank also steps in as a buyer of last resort for failing financial instruments in order to sustain the financial market. We're just saying, let's do this for the most important component of our economy, of our society, which is people. Because when we have high levels of unemployment, tons of studies show us that we have increases in crime, in depression, in anxiety, in domestic violence, child abuse, all kinds of social problems. Just the, the social costs are massive. Just 
the cost of incarceration, just to limit this, the cost of incarceration, uh, what we spent on the incarceration system in terms of dollars, multiply that by 10 and you get the social costs associated with the incarceration system. So we're already paying for it with uh, blood, tears, and money, as I often say, in terms of the, this is the cost of doing nothing. This is the inaction. And what we're saying is, with a fraction of that cost that we're already paying as a society, we can employ people, give them decent wages, and give them skills and experiences, and build thriving communities, and direct those investments via job guarantee in the most neglected areas of the economy, geographically, in terms of communities, at a fraction of the cost of what we're already doing. And we can focus in areas that don't necessarily displace the private sector. We're going to complement the private sector. We're going to do the things that the private sector is not willing or able to do, especially for the most vulnerable people. That's the role of the federal government. So we do this as an employment program, yes, as a poverty alleviation, as a, as a poverty extermination program, but we address the root causes of so many of the social problems that we're dealing with. And on top of that, we do it as a price stabilization feature. And then finally, I'll say one thing because I, I'm sure people will ask this question. Well, how much are you gonna pay those workers if you pay them $15 or $20 and you give them wages and benefits and pensions? How can the private sector compete with that? You know, How can McDonald's or Amazon compete with that? Well, here's the thing, uh, we, because we've experienced a similar transition in the past. When, when we had slavery in this country, what did the slave owner say mm. when we said we need to end slavery? He said, well, wait a minute, I, that doesn't fit my business model. I can't pay people to do this kind of work. I'll, I'll go out of business. And what did society say? Well, maybe you should be out of business and somebody else will take your, your market share and will figure out a decent way of producing what you produce, pay workers decent wages and, and allow the economy and society to, to move forward. So we shouldn't be you know, accepting this narrative from, from the big corporations saying, well, that doesn't fit our business model because what's gonna happen when, when Amazon and, and Walmart pay higher wages? Well, they're gonna have to take a little bit of the profit share that's going to shareholders and CEOs and CFOs and the oligarchs and actually give that to workers. And guess what workers will do with that higher wage and benefit at, at Amazon and Walmart? They're probably most likely gonna turn around and buy more stuff from Walmart or from Amazon. So this is, uh, we need to break that myth that corporations can't afford higher wages. Now, small businesses, yes, small businesses will struggle with this transition, but it doesn't mean we should give up on a minimum standard for workers across the board. So here's what the federal government can and should do to relieve the burden on the smallest businesses and, uh, and, and these communities so that they can actually afford to pay living wages to their workers. One of the biggest burdens on small businesses is healthcare costs. And that's why we argue for Medicare for all so that we take the burden off of businesses and we offer it as a human right paid for by the federal government the same way we describe we pay for national priorities, just like we paid for wars, just like we paid for tax cuts, we can afford uh, this. So that's burden number one that's removed from private businesses. And by the way, private businesses and workers, because we also pay part of that healthcare cost as, as workers. Sure. Number two, major burden on, uh, on businesses is the FICA tax, which is a social security uh, Medicare tax. 
Same thing, the federal government can afford to provide those services universally. It doesn't have to be a burden on employers and employees. Um, so you can at least exempt small businesses from the FICA tax, and that more than offsets the increase in wages. And you can offer universal health care so we don't have to keep that burden. And once you do that, we can all afford higher wages, living wages, and benefits, and we can start the race to the top as opposed to the race to the bottom. One final question. So you've laid out the idea that all of our attention we pay to debt-to-GDP ratios don't matter and that the real thing we should focus on is inflation. You've pointed out that the U.S. operated under basically an MMT system during World War II, arguably also during the bailout in 2007, and that Japan has basically been doing this for a couple of decades. So my question for you is this. If inflation is really the only number we should worry about, what number for an inflationary rate would give you pause? Uh, it's actually a little bit more complicated than just a single number for inflation because it, the inflation number has components that come mm -hmm. from different sectors of the economy. And pre-COVID, because the, the COVID situation now, the reopening of the economy, yes, it's causing a little bit of uh, kind of supply chain shortages and that's driving up prices in key areas. But let's talk about, and I, and I believe that's transitory, it's gonna fade out as we sure. as we continue this, uh, this recovery. It's not gonna bring us into a cycle of hyperinflation. Pre-COVID, when you dissect the components of inflation in the United States, we have four areas of the economy that are causing the pressure points, the inflation pressure points in the economy. And those are, and I think you're gonna recognize these because everybody, <laughs> they pay bills and they know <laughs> what's, what's causing uh, the pain in their budget. It's healthcare, it's education, energy and transportation, and housing. These are the areas where we have inflation pressure points. And what does MMT say about the sources of inflation? Two things, shortage of productive capacity. In other words, we, we have lack of resources in those areas, and sometimes it's by design, <laughs> by market power. And number two, inflation pressure points by market concentration. Mm -hmm. and, and it's no surprise that it's big oil and big real estate companies and big pharma and, and, and the healthcare industry, health insurance companies that are driving that inflation uh, pressure. And it's no surprise that that's where the wealth accumulation starts to suck money to the top. So how do we address the inflation pressure points? And this is how, for example, the Green New Deal is designed. The Green New Deal is not the, the shopping list of the favorite programs that the progressives want. It's designed specifically to increase productive capacity and inclusion in health, education, housing, energy, and transportation. That's how the Green New Deal is designed. And it's also designed to tax and regulate abusive market power in those sectors and to make those sectors more competitive in order to tame the inflation pressure points. And if we have a big spending program like a Green New Deal or infrastructure, whatever you call it, without doing that, without increasing capacity and democratizing those markets, we will have more inflation because we're simply feeding that inflation machine more money. And of course, it's going to produce more inflation. So we have to be very careful. I'll be the first person to tell you spending too much can cause inflation. But if we spend the right way and tax and regulate the right way, we can have more jobs, more prosperity, fight climate change, universal health, better education without causing inflation. And that means targeting the inflation pressure points 
with the additional spending and with taxing and regulation. And, and that's how we, that's the MMT approach to inflation. Whereas the standard approach to inflation, which you hear from people like Mitch McConnell and mainstream economists on TV these days, say all of this infrastructure spending, all of this COVID spending is going to cause inflation, hyperinflation, and, and, and they don't get into the nuances of what actually causes inflation. And part of it is kind of theoretical indoctrination of, of the old economic ideas, but the, quite a bit of it is ideological because the MMT approach focuses on the role of market power. And, and that is fundamentally about democracy, fundamentally about um, uh, uh, class interest in, in the American economy and, and, and globally. And mainstream economists, conservative economists, try to stay away from those you know, sensitive subjects, let's call them. And, and, and we just you know, face them head on. I really appreciate that answer. Um, I want to thank you for coming on the show today. Uh, this has been a great listen and like learning experience for me, and I hope it's for the audience as well. Uh, if people want to follow your work online, where should they look? Well, thank you for, for having me. This was a, a fun conversation. Um, you can find me on, on social media, um, on, on Twitter, LinkedIn, even Facebook. Um, as I said, I, uh, I teach at Denison University in, in Ohio, and I run the Global Institute for Sustainable Prosperity. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to engage with people. Uh, maybe in the, in the show notes, we can post some links to some interesting readings. Absolutely. Uh, but beyond what I said here, there's, there's tons of information out there. I mentioned Stephanie Kelton and, and her fantastic work, uh, The Deficit Myth. If you haven't uh, read the book yet, uh, go get it. There's an audio version of it too. There's plenty of online materials, you know, everything I do. Is, is recorded and is posted. And the same is true for Stephanie Kelton uh, and, and other MMT economists in, in this space. There's resources with tons of MMT-specific podcasts and webinars and things like that. Uh, look up the MMT podcast. Look up Macro and Cheese. Uh, if you're interested in the, in the democracy and, and corruption aspect of what I discuss, look up a fantastic podcast called The New Untouchables. Uh, it's, it's just a massive source of resources, and there's plenty of other, you know, MMT-related podcasts. So once once you get plugged into those, you, you'll see how how expansive the network is, both in the U.S. and Europe, and in the global South. There's quite a bit of interest in in this stuff in, in the global South. And I, as as an immigrant, I always live at least in two time zones. So I do <laughs> the MMT public policy work here in the U.S. Uh, on the front lines, but also quite a bit of uh, organizing and educating in the global south uh, to get rid of these uh, artificial myths and constraints and, and really tackle uh, some of the root causes of uh, struggles that developing countries deal with. Again, thank you so much for coming on today. Wakanda forever, y'all. Wash your hands, get vaccinated, and convict the police that killed Manuel Ellis. Channel 253 is a member-supported podcast network. I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I'm asking you to become a member and show your support. Go to channel253.com slash membership to join. Thank you. Nerd Farmer is part of the Channel 253 Podcast Network. Check out our other shows. Interchangeable White Ladies, Give Me the Mic, We Art Tacoma, Move to Tacoma, Taco Man, Flounder's B-Team, Crossing Division, Citizen Tacoma, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.